Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the MDDDS podcast. That's the Memphis Doctors and Dentists Discipleship Study, and I'm your host, orthodontist, Dr. Kyle Fagala. Tonight I'll be teaching, continuing in, at what we're calling chapter 7 of our series on the story, on the Bible, and we're still in the Old Testament. I'll be teaching on the five books of the wisdom literature. So we're going to call this series The Wisdom of Israel. We're going to look at the books of Psalms and Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, or what we call Song of Solomon often. Um, We'll look at different literary styles that are found throughout the Bible. We'll look at the concepts of poetry and wisdom literature, and then we'll look at all five books. There's just some masterful books. Psalms is the longest book of the Bible, so we are not going to be able to spend due time on all 150 chapters of Psalms, but we'll be able to look at the themes and, again, a 30,000-foot view of it. Um, There will be some videos that we watch that are from the Bible Project. Those will not be included in the podcast, but I do recommend that you go look those up. I will reference them when we get to that point. Uh, But let's go ahead and jump in again with the wisdom of Israel. Uh, We are still in the Old Testament, so if you haven't been here in a minute or two, we have started with Genesis. I think we did Genesis, and maybe in this group we did it in one part. Then we did Exodus, and then we started to speed up, started grouping books together, something like that. And uh, I think we did, what, 10 prophets last week? Michael did a great job with 10 prophets. Um, Tonight we're doing uh, half that. We're doing five books. One of them is Psalms, so that's basically 10 books in itself. Um, And we're going to be calling this the Wisdom of Israel. All right, so these are going to be some wisdom books, some poetry books, probably some of the most beloved Old Testament books and some that you're most familiar with we'll be covering tonight. Because it's so much to cover and partly because there's some really great videos, I have what is definitely the max number of videos you can do in one night. It's three videos. But the videos are so good, and they're all different. It's not like the same, like where they scribble on the poster thing. Some really cool videos. We're going to go through that. Um, does anyone know how many different authors there are in the entire Bible? So there are 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. How many different authors? Is there, it's a rough estimate, but what's, what's, your, what's your guess? 20-ish. 20-ish? 35. 35. It's not 66, I'll tell you that. But you kind of like, like a separate author in the same book, do they count? I ju- it's just the first thing that showed up on Google, so. 42. 42? 42. 43. 43? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I have, I have 40. I have 40. So on Price is Right rule, uh, rules, we'll give that to Will at 35, because <laughs> y'all went over. Uh, so somewhere roughly 40 or so. Um, the reason I bring that up is just to, to kind of bring home the idea that the Bible is not one book written by one person. And so because of that, and because of the fact that it was written over a span of what, 1,500 years, something like that, uh, it's very different from book to book. There's a lot of lir- literary devices, a lot of literary styles that are used, and a lot of different voicings. So we'll get into that, uh, but I think this video is kind of a good intro to those ideas. All right, so I love that video, and it kind of breathes life into as we're reading through these things, I think. Um, and I, I obviously, like with a series like this, I would recommend that you do try and read through the Bible. Just because we go through this tonight doesn't mean that you'll like get everything from these books. Uh, in fact, as I've been reading through like Leviticus, and I'm in Numbers right now, um, I think I joked with David about this. It's like, oh man, it seems so much more interesting when we studied it. <laughs> you know, there's there's some long stretches of like numbering out the tribes of Israel. There's like a lot of chapters and numbers. I'm like, 
okay, I get it. You know, Issachar and all his sons and how many gold things they had. Um, uh, but there's also a lot of beauty, and I think understanding it on this level allows you to appreciate it more when you're reading through it, and you don't get stuck in those sections as much because you know what's coming. Um, but anyway, definitely read through it. Uh, again, the, the idea of this is, is that the Bible is something that, you know, over our seven years of life or so, that we're hopefully going to read through multiple times, and each time you read it, it's sort of like picking up a, a new stone on a path and, and seeing something new underneath it. Um, and I think that's true every time I get into it. Uh, Eric mentioned this yesterday, but uh, the one thing that's most predictive of continued faith is those that read the Bible. And so I think it is the most you know, important spiritual discipline. Uh, prayer is also important, but, but reading your Bible regularly is a huge thing. Um, all right, so literary styles in the Bible. We're going to do some blanks here, and they talked about all of them, so you may have already filled these in. But the first is narrative. As it said in the video, there's three types. There's historical narrative, there are parables, and there are biographies like the four Gospels. Uh, and these are stories. And as I said, the, bi- the bulk of the Bible, 43% of it is stories for a reason. That's how most of us learn. Uh, storytelling is one of the oldest forms of uh, entertainment. You know, these stories were probably one of the first ways that people you know, kind of entertain themselves, sitting around a fire, you could say, uh, sitting in a cave, telling stories, making things up. Um, and so obviously that connects with us uh, on a level that maybe poetry doesn't, which is the next one. Uh, so poetry is the second thing. Uh, did anyone like study literature at all in college? Is it anyone's major? Minor? I mean German, but with the kind of Sure, I'm sure lots of, German, huh? Minor or major? Major. German? Wow. That's random. I bet that was good in your interviews. Um, so, German poetry. I'm not familiar with a lot of German poets. Goethe? Like the German Shakespeare, man. He's a big deal. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to sound so <laughs> ignorant. Is that the guy that wrote the Gutenberg or the Gutenberg friends? No, that was. His good. uncle. <laughs> um, I feel like I'll sound rude to make fun of the idea of. Poetry being read in German. It's, really, it's, it's yeah. really ugly. Yeah. Not the most beautiful of languages. Yeah. Um, no, that's great. Who, me and Sully are mad? Oh, no, Germans in poetry. What did you study in terms of literature? Like, what was your minor, like the focus? Literature in general. Okay. Okay. That's cool. That does not surprise me. I know you like to read and everything. Do you like to read poetry? Does anyone like to read poetry other than Caitlin? Okay, I, I bring it up because I, like I, I, there's almost nothing I'd less rather do than read poetry. Like it just doesn't, I, that says probably more about me than anything else. Um, but I just like, I remember having to study it in school. My mom was an English teacher. She like would write poems, she, she loved poems. She wanted me to read those sort of things. It just never, uh, just I couldn't get into it. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of people. I mean, he even says in the videos like, oh, I don't like to read poetry. I think that's true. The, the focus, though, and the reason I'm saying all this is that that's 33% of the Bible. So if you don't like poetry, you're going to miss a third of the Bible. Okay. Um, now, we'll talk about poetry a little bit more in detail, but you know, Hebrew poetry is not exactly you know, like the poetry that we think of. Um, but there's also different types of poetry. There are songs, there's wisdom, and there's prophets. And so I don't really think of the prophets as being poetry per se, but most of what the prophets write is poetry and we talked about how Jonah is actually like a narrative book but the rest of it is mostly in the form of poetry. Um, Poems use metaphor to evoke emotion and imagination. I like this is that the reason that poetry is good is that it gets us to think differently. 
So it's not just a statement of fact. It's going to use imagery and metaphor to kind of get you off the rut of which you normally think of things. Uh, and that's true of art in general. It's to, to provoke you to think about something in a different way, uh, whether that's music or film or poetry. Um, and so I probably should read more poetry. Um, the third is prose discourse, probably the term you're least familiar with. Uh, this is David's section. This is what David likes. This is also probably what I like. I like logical thinking. This is like, like William Lane Craig, apologetics type stuff. This is like Paul's writing is a lot of prose discourse. Uh, and this is persuading others with reason, logic, and consistency. Um, but pretty different from poetry. All right, so then we'll move into this section. We're going to look at actually poetry and wisdom literature. And so those are styles. And then we're going to talk about books of poetry and books of wisdom. A little confusing, but let's just talk about poetry as an idea first off. Um, as we said above, one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. There's only uh, five books in the Old Testament that don't have poetry in them. Uh, can you guess what some of those might be? Is it written out there? I hope not. Okay. Leviticus. Leviticus is, yeah, of course. Leviticus it just goes straight into business, right? No time for poetry. According to this, Numbers is not one of those. I don't know if the other ones are like super obvious. Leviticus is like the only one that's like, well, there's no poetry in Leviticus. Mm -hmm. So it's just down to business. Uh, Ruth, Esther, Haggai, and Malachi don't have any poetry. Just those five. So every other Old Testament book has some poetry in it. Um, as I said earlier, Hebrew poetry is a little different than like American or French or probably even German poetry. Um, and poetry is usually recognized by rhyme and rhythm. Okay, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme though. Okay, um, it does have rhythm, and it has you know things like meter and other things that are kind of common to uh, poetry. Um, and so, like our typical understanding of, of poetry would be like one, two, buckle my shoe. That has rhythm in it. It has rhyme. Okay, uh, but again, Hebrew uh, poetry doesn't do that. So we're going to use an example just to kind of look at Hebrew poetry and start to get an idea of sort of what it's about. And so this is Psalms uh, nineteen one. You may be familiar with some pretty famous psalms. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And so you could call this a couplet. It's two lines that are together for a reason in a poem, and that's common like to Shakespeare. It's probably even common to the Shakespeare of Germany. Guten. Is that right? Guta, yeah. Guta, okay, yeah. sorry. Isn't that a cheese? Okay, that's no. why I got it wrong. Yeah. I feel, st I feel so stupid right now for not knowing that, but anyway. Um, but let's look at kind of uh, how these sort of uh, pair up. And so what you'll see is that in this couplet, it repeats the same idea, but in a different way, okay? So what you'll see mm -hmm. is we've got the heavens, and that matches up with the sky above. So basically the same thing. It's just restating the same again. Then you'll see that you've got declare which matches up with proclaims and then you'll see that the glory of God matches up with his handiwork so basically the same thing so the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork so it just repeats it and so this is what's called synonymous parallelism okay so it's basically it's parallel and it's saying the same thing okay um, and then we'll look here at some different ways of doing that oh we're not going to talk about that just yet um, okay so here are the three categories. Your blank is synonymous. And so this uh, example here from Psalm 19.1 is synonymous and it's parallel. Um, and so that's going to be really common. I'm just going to state the same thing. And, and again, like if you were doing this less metaphorically, you could just say that 
you know, God is powerful, or God is all-powerful. Like, that's basically what this is saying. Or you could say it poetically, and so it gets you to think about it differently. It gives a little bit more detail, more color, and more kind of style to the substance behind the fact that God is powerful. Okay? Um, the second one is antithetical, and you guys are smart, so you probably know what that means. It's the opposite. All right, so it just means that you're going to have in a couplet one statement, and then the one that follows it is going to be opposite of that. So Proverbs 10.1 is an example. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Okay? You got a wise son, you got a foolish son. Those are different. All right. And then the last one is synthetic. And as sometimes is the case with definitions, like the first two, those are great. Synthetic, for lack of a better explanation, just means everything else. Okay? So this is where the two parts of the line do not display either. So the one thing you can kind of count on with Hebrew poetry, and a lot of this is obviously lost as it's translated into English, is that there's going to be some sort of rhythm to the words. Most of that you capture in, in Hebrew. And also it's going to be two lines together. Okay? And you'll see that. That's why that it's always written out in your Bible like in two lines together. Um, all right. And this will be the opposite of one and two, synthetic. Okay, so let's move into wisdom. And so wisdom writings are of a varied character, so it's difficult to group them, group them exactly. We've got uh, proverbs, which would be like instructional or proverbial wisdom. These would be like basic practical instructions on how to live. Most people love Proverbs because it makes a lot of sense. Things were written 1,500 years ago. It still is like, oh, yeah, that's still true today, or 2,500 years ago. Sorry. Uh, Job and Ecclesiastes would be like contemplative wisdom. Uh, so this would be pondering the things about life that are perplexing, which, again, still relevant, talking about the meaninglessness of life or the uh, sort of like randomness of life. Those books both get at that. And then something like the Song of Solomon, which is lyrical wisdom. And so it's a story celebrating one of God's best gifts. And we will talk about it in a second. Um, but let's talk about wisdom just in general, because I think wisdom is something obviously like we're all after, like we'd all love to be more wise. Tell me again, what you said there was like three different levels of learning. You say it better than I would. Yeah, I think there's like there's facts, which is knowing information. And um, we know a lot of people that know information. Sometimes if you know facts, that can be kind of dangerous. Um, there's knowledge, which is your ability to integrate the facts that you know. So I think in your professional life, that's really what you use. So you may know some facts about um, dental anatomy and know some facts about hygiene and know some facts about whatever. And you bring those different facts together and how they interact, that's, that's knowledge. So knowledge is useful. And then the, the next level is wisdom, which is the ability to use the knowledge you have to live life well. And so some of the wisest people um, are not the best educated, right? Because they know how to live life well based on, um, based on experience, based on just being a, a wise person. So I, I think sometimes we get in kind of internet type arguments or Twitter type fights based on facts. You're just kind of yelling past each other and I'm saying, well, did you know that whatever, this space is, you know, it's this meters just saying, like, what are you talking about? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And so uh, I think that, that ultimately um, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So that's kind of a theme of the Bible is that what we want is, is wisdom. Hmm, that's great. Um, kind of just reading this quote really quickly is, is that what wisdom books have in common is a keen interest in the way the world works, humanity's place within it, and how all this operates under God's creative sovereign care. 
Um, and so biblical wisdom then could be defined as skill on the art of godly living, uh, or you could say that orientation which allows one to live in harmony with God's ordering of the world. Okay, so basically, um, if you're wise, uh, you, you live more godly and you live in harmony with God's ordering of the world. Um, so, you know, obviously, you, you can think of wisdom in a, in a non-Christian or in a secular way, and in that way you would say that you know, wise people, they always know the right decisions to make. You know, they always know to, how to kind of navigate problems that arise. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, it would be that he who is wise understands that, but also understands how to glorify God with their life. You know, and so as he says, and we'll actually talk about it, the fear of the Lord is kind of where that starts. And you can say that an awareness of uh, the deeper questions of life is what starts down that path too. And so to, to contemplate these bigger questions. Um, so I think the, the most ignorant among us are the ones that are unwilling to ask those deep questions and, and, and kind of fight and wrestle with those things. Um, and there's bliss to that in this life, um, but it's hardly any way to live if there is eternity. You know, probably the simplest way to live just this life would be to ask none of those questions and just like drink and have fun, you know. Um, but that's that's a, a gamble, you know. Um, all right, so let's move on into the actual books. Okay, so we'll move into Psalms. Um, does anyone know what the alternate title? And David, you can't answer any of these because you were in class. Um, the alternate title of Psalms is. There's another title for it. This is not a joke. This is true. You either know it or you don't. So we're going to go. It's the Psalter. Has anyone heard that? Okay, there you go. Um, that's the person that puts the salt on the food, the Psalter. Sorry. Very bad dad joke. Um, and so uh, it's a collection of 150 poems uh, that comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song. That's your blank. And uh, that's appropriate because this was, for many years, the songbook of the people of God. Okay? And so this would have been used like in temple worship as their sort of hymnal or their songbook. Um, there's several, several different authors. When I think of Psalms, I think predominantly of King David. Like that's who I think wrote it. But in fact, David uh, only wrote 73 of the Psalms, which is a lot. There's 150 of them, but he wrote 73 of them. Uh, another guy named Asaph wrote 12. The Sons of Korah wrote 11. It sounds like to me like a uh, contemporary Christian group, the Sons of Korah or something, opening for Hillsong. Um, Solomon wrote two, and actually this one's interesting. I don't know if you knew this. Moses wrote one psalm. Um, and so with the exception of Moses, most of those who wrote the, wrote the psalms were musical people, and that makes sense. It's a songbook. Okay. Um, and so David, it says in 1 Samuel, was skillful in playing the lyre, which is sort of like a guitar. Uh, he was an accomplished songwriter, it said in 2 Samuel. The sons of Korah served in the sanctuary in 1 Chronicles. Asaph was in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. That's in 1 Chronicles. So I think it's just interesting to sort of accept that very early on, worshiping God with, with music, with song, was, was a common part of what they did. Okay, uh, For me, like getting to sing every Sunday is what's part of, part of what makes it the greatest day of the week for me. Like I love singing. Um, listening to music throughout the week uh, it really has changed the way that I um, changed my relationship with God, I would say. I didn't used to listen to Christian music throughout the week. We listen to it at work now. I listen to it in the car. My kids listen to it at night. Um, you know, being able to, to play in like a praise band and that, in that way, listen to more songs, play more songs, and kind of focus on the lyrics made a huge difference. So I think it's another one of those things sort of like, um, you know, reading your Bible or praying regularly. It's, it's a way that you, 
you think about these things more often and think, some, think about biblical truths rather than kind of cultural uh, ideas. And so I think music's a very powerful thing on many levels. Um, but obviously Psalms is, is, is just that, it's a songbook. Um, so when you think about like when it was written, Psalms is super interesting because it has probably, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but probably the biggest span of authorship time-wise of any book in the Bible. Yeah, and so all the way from Moses, which would be 15th century BC, to that of David and Solomon, which is 10th century BC, and then down into the post-exilic time, so after the exile, which is 5th century BC. So about you know a thousand years of time to write this, and then obviously it was collected at some point down the line. So it's pretty cool. Uh, we are going to watch a video on Psalms because I can't summarize 150 books, even if I tried. So let's move on. Um, the Song of Solomon. Who wrote the Song of Solomon? Solomon. It's a good guess. Yeah. Um, that's what I always grew up thinking. I think that's what I was told, and that's possible. Um, you'll notice, it, well, you won't see this, but in the Bible Project book, they actually call it Song of Songs. Has anyone seen that, where it's called that? It's one of those like, little details I probably noticed and just sort of ignored, but I think predominantly we call it the Song of Solomon. Um, I think probably more accurately is Song of Songs, and the technical term is the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. And I think it's most likely that Solomon did not write it, okay? Um, but first, let's say Song of Songs. This is like one of those sort of things that should remind you of like the Holy of Holies or like the King of Kings. This is sort of like the way that a Hebrew would have uh, created a superlative. So we would say like the greatest or the best or the mightiest. They would say like, this is the Song of Songs, and so it's the greatest song, literally, is what that means, okay? Um, why it was probably not written by Solomon, because I think it's interesting, it's one of these like, kind of like, blows my mind to think that he didn't write that, because then why have we called it the Song of Solomon? Um, but it's, it's probably meaning that it's in the style of Solomon, and so Solomon is the one that sort of created this wisdom literature and this style, and so it's a book that is a Song of Songs in the style of Solomon. Um, the reasons why it's not Solomon would be the main voice in this book, Song of Songs, is that of a woman. The man's voice isn't Solomon. Solomon is mentioned but never speaks. And I think most, uh, obviously, Solomon had 700 plus wives and concubines and all sorts of things. So it seems a little hypocritical because this book is really focused on the love between one man and one woman. Okay, so maybe he wrote it, um, but Solomon, come on, man. You know, I don't know if it really fits your story. Um, so I'm going to really quickly kind of go through what this book uh, covers. Um, uh, and I just, I think for you all, I just have like the little thematic titles, but I'll, I'll give a little bit more. I'll just read it through so you can get an idea. So A Tale of Two Lovers. There are two lovers who are introduced, who are likely betrothed or married. Uh, let's hope they're married. Um, they declare their love for each other, expressing the meaning behind the allegories and imagery. Then there's a section of seeking and finding, and so the two lovers constantly search for each other, and then they reunite in song, uh, which further demonstrates the great power and mystery of love touching our hearts. Uh, there's a section on sexual desire as a gift. So God created sexual desire as a gift for humans to enjoy before sin had corrupted it, and the two lovers use its correct application. Uh, there's a section on right timing. Uh, though both lovers are immensely captivated by each other, the woman methodically reminds the readers to wait for the special passion at the right time. And then symbolic love. Much like the two lovers, God's love for his people is powerful and unending. The symbolism has translated into both Jewish and Christian biblical interpretations. Okay, so that's the Song of Songs. 
All right. Now, if you read it, it's got some really interesting imagery and metaphors, and it uh, you know compares a woman's uh, body to like animals and mountains and milk and all kinds of just interesting things. I made up, I think, all those. But um, go read it. It's an interesting book. Um, I think I saw something where in the Jewish culture uh, at times it was like PG-30. I think you had to be like a certain age to read it. So uh, it's pretty uh, mature. So, you know, we're not reading this with the kids at night. Um, but an interesting book and a beautiful book. There's three, way, uh, three ways to interpret it. Uh, there's the Jewish tradition that's your blank. And this, of course, would be uh, that it's an allegory of Israel and God. Okay, so what's the point of this book, and why is it written in this way? Um, they would say it's well, it's not to just get across the idea of these two people and sex, and that it's some sort of story about that, but that it's actually an allegory of Israel and God. Now, Christian tradition would be that it's an allegory of the Church and Christ, and so that that's a way to interpret this or to apply it today. Um, and then the third thing is it's just a collection of ancient poetry. Uh, and this poetry, it reflects on divine, the divine gift of love, but that's really all that it's trying to be. And to be honest, I don't know which of those I fall on the side of. To me, I think probably the book is just a collection of ancient poetry, but it does act as an allegory of both Israel and God. I think that's probably the way in which it was written. Um, and of course, we can apply it to the church and, and Christ. Um, so something like that. So all three, maybe. Uh, what it's ultimately about, though, and I think I'm just going to read this because it's good, is that it holds out hope that even though our own relationships are uh, so often distorted by selfishness, love is a transcendent gift that points to something greater, the gift of God's love that will one day permeate and transform his beloved world. Okay. All right, so let's move on into Proverbs, and these will be books of wisdom. So those are our books of poetry. Now we're going to look at Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, which are books of wisdom. All right, so Proverbs. Um, this was written and collected by King Solomon, okay? And he reigned over Israel from 971 to 931 B.C., and he's the one that began this sort of wisdom tradition. Uh, we learn in 1 Kings, and so you grow up, you know, if, if you go to church, that Solomon was considered like the wisest man ever. You know, there's a story of him getting the option for one thing and he chooses wisdom. Um, but that would be like, you know, obviously that's in the Bible, but it's also sort of an understood thing that Solomon was wise. And there's stories of people traveling to meet with Solomon to have him answer questions and things like that. But uh, Solomon's, in First Kings, it says, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Uh, so just obviously a really talented, really intelligent guy. Um, the goal of Proverbs is to describe and instill wisdom in God's people. And as David said earlier, this is a wisdom that is founded in the fear of the Lord. All right, and it works out covenant life and the practical details of everyday situations and relationships. Okay, uh, so it's going to cover a variety of topics from daily life. And if you're looking for an Old Testament book to read, honestly, Proverbs is one of my favorites. I think it's the sort of book you could read, you know, you could read it every day, you know, it's with 31 chapters, I think. So you could read it like, you know, every day, like read a new chapter and go through it 12 times or something, basically. It'd be kind of a cool goal for your year. Um, it deals with diligence and laziness, friendship, speech, marriage, child rearing, domestic peace, work, getting along and good manners, and it even deals with eternity, okay? So uh, there's a reason why when you look at those little Bibles that have the New Testament and they have some of the Old Testament, what are the two books they throw in there? 
No, it's actually Song of Solomon and no, yeah, and Leviticus. No, it's Psalms and Proverbs. And the reason being is, is that I mean, you have the beauty of Psalms. I mean, really, a, I, I hate to rank books, but I mean, it's just a massive and amazing work. I mean, I think the fact that it was over a thousand years is awesome. And you have Proverbs because it's just so practical and it's so universal, and it still stands up today. Um, they don't put Ecclesiastes in there, okay? <laughs> there's, there's a reason. We'll talk about it. Um, what Proverbs shows is that godliness is of value in every way as it holds promises for the present life and also for the life to come. And so Christian wisdom would be that understanding, is, is that becoming more like God, so being sanctified, leads to a better life now and a better life later, okay? A better life is a subjective thing as we talk about this life, um, but in terms of eternity, being godly is something that is objectively positive. Okay. All right. So we have another video. It's the last video. Okay. Home stretch, guys. Ecclesiastes. All right. I keep asking these questions, but who wrote Ecclesiastes? It's like no one wants to answer now. Oh. I keep tricking you. Does it say it right there? It says it right there. Oh, Ecclesia wrote it. Yes. How'd you know that? Um, well, again, I grew up being told it was Solomon that wrote it. I guess Solomon, he like gets all the credit for all this stuff. Um, and it depends on how you want to like, you know, view the history of all this. And I'm certainly not trying to act like, you know, I mean, that we can't trust what the Bible says or anything like that. But um, it, scholars would say it may or may not have been Solomon. Um, I think probably like modern scholars would say it was probably someone other than Solomon written after Solomon, and I don't know. I think regardless of who wrote it or who didn't write it, um, it's got some great stuff in it. So um, as the video kind of outlined, you have Proverbs, which is like this really kind of positive look, and, and not just like hopelessly positive, but like, you know, I mean, wisely positive um, look at life, okay? Um, whereas Ecclesiastes is definitely not positive. If you read Ecclesiastes, it's really a drag. It's it's really you know negative and critical and cynical and um, somewhere I kind of find myself pretty comfortable like reading Ecclesiastes. Um, this is like the internet before there was internet. There was Ecclesiastes, okay. <laughs> um, and so um, as it said, the critics' response to Proverbs, you could say, and so it is a good you know kind of counterpart to it. Um, and so Proverbs would state that if we live a we we sorry we live a good life when we fear God and follow wisdom. Um, but the author of Ecclesiastes would believe that life is meaningless. So if you've read Ecclesiastes, it says over and over and over, life is meaningless, meaningless, and all this sort of stuff. That word is hevel. That's H-E-V-E-L. That's the Hebrew word for meaningless. So when it says life is meaningless, the word there is hevel, uh, which refers to uh, kind of the fleeting nature of smoke or of vapor. So it's, it's hevel. So it's like it's here today, and then it's immediately gone. And trying to like gather it up is pointless because it's just a vapor, okay? And you could describe life in that way. Um, and so I would say that we all try to build meaning and purpose in life apart from God. We invest in pursuits and things that have no lasting meaning. Um, and time marches on, we all die, and bad things happen to good people, okay? And that's kind of like the cynical approach to life, okay? And I think that's the hardest thing about all this is that you can read a book like Proverbs, very practical stuff, as in the video they said, things that tend to be true. People who are wise tend to have better lives, but not always. Some really wise and great people that 
get a disease and die at 34. And it's like, why, why did that have to happen? And you have idiots that live to 90 and have great lives. And it's like, well, how did that happen? I watched a documentary on the Rolling Stones the other day, and Keith Richards should be dead. He should be dead. He's tried so hard to die. Uh, and he's still alive. And he even kind of jokes about it. And he's like, I don't know, I'm still, you know, still alive. So addicted to heroin for decades and just has lived life so hard. And he's still alive. Doesn't make a lot of sense, you know. Um, I'm not saying he, he should die or want him to die. Nothing like that. Just, it's just one of those like conundrums when you look at life. It's like it's seemingly random. And yet, on the whole, I think what's said in Proverbs is true. Um, and so, again, Hevel is like fog. It's uncontrollable. Um, and so I would just say as a commentary, we can spend a lifetime trying to control our lives. We can, you know, as intelligent people, as self-motivated people, um, as people who are successful for most metrics, we can try and make our lives better. We can read self-help books. We can listen to TED Talks. Uh, we can even kind of like use prayer as like the sort of tool to try to get what we want. Um, but that's not guaranteed. And I think this can kind of become like an idolatry of self. Uh, where you, you want something and you're trying to like make it happen or manifest it. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily biblical. I think that's uh, more us trying to, to control and be sovereign over our lives than to allow God to do that. Okay, So maybe that goes off on a tangent that's a little bit more complicated, but I think that's ultimately pride. Um, so I think a book like Ecclesiastes is sort of helpful to sort of reel ourselves back in from that kind of self-reliant, it's very, a very American way of thinking, you know, that well, I, can, I can blaze this trail myself. I think you see that in the Bible time and time again. I'm reading about Moses right now where he, he gets frustrated it's like shortly after his sister passes away and the Israelites are complaining and he strikes a rock instead of speaking to the rock and he loses it all because of that. It's like, ooh, that stinks. But he was trying to do it himself and he wanted to take credit for what was happening, which we would oftentimes do. And so it's like we want God to help us. We also kind of want the credit for it. And uh, that's not good. Um, so three things are true about life according to uh, Ecclesiastes. Time marches on, we all die, and life is random. Man, that sounds fun. Almost like it sounds like something you'd hear like an atheist or an agnostic say, right? Like, these are truths of life, right? And this is in the Bible. It's pretty interesting. Um, of course, there is you know, sort of a religious spin to it. And I think what that spin is, is that in some sense, these are true, these statements. Time marches on, yep, we all die, that's true. And life is seemingly random, okay? Um, and so in the end, the key to contentment or to finding joy in a life that's like that is through wisdom. We must accept hevel, which is the meaninglessness of life or the seeming meaninglessness. But we also need to fear God, keep our commandments, and put our trust in Him, okay? So you basically have two options. If we accept like the reality of life, which is stuff is random and bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people, um, I mean, we're told that in the Bible. That's not like this is some mystery. There's nothing in the Bible that says good things happen to good people. And I think that idea gets perpetuated a lot in pseudo-Christianity. So I think it, it causes for like, people to make arguments about you know, whether there's God or not by saying, well, there's evil in the world, so God can't exist. Well, that doesn't... I mean, there's no claim in the Bible that good things happen to good people always or that suffering isn't you know, guaranteed to people that are both good and bad. So the, the rain comes on good and evil. So, I mean, these are all ideas that are in the Bible, so it's a pretty poor argument. Um, but in the face of this meaninglessness, we have to trust God. That starts by fearing God. We need to keep his commandments. 
So Ecclesiastes is one of these books that kind of ends on like a little bit of a down note, um, but I think it's just a, it's another layer of wisdom. Okay, and it's again, this is a video kind of like points it out very well. It's like very young in your life when you're first learning about Christianity. Let's say you're very you know excited about it and everything looks great, and then somewhere in the middle of your life you kind of find all the arguments against Christianity and you kind of become a little bit cynical about it. And then the third stage is going to be what we see in Job, which is where you kind of combine the two and you, you develop a sort of wisdom and a mature wisdom about it. Okay. All right, so speaking of Job, let's go on to Job. Um, let's see. All right, Job. Uh, we don't know uh, who wrote Job or really when it was written. Uh, a lot of people think it was maybe the oldest book that's in the Old Testament. Who knows? Okay. Um, do you know where Job lived? Does anyone know this trivia? Not David. No, David, sorry. Is it written on the sheet? It's a blank, isn't it? Close. Uz. <laughs> the Wizard of Uz. Yeah, Uz. Um, it's some... Oh, sorry, of course. U-Z. Uz. Um, a little Bible trivia for you. It's outside the borders of Israel, and it seems that Job takes place during the time of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, again, we don't know. A great book. Like, one of my favorites. Really good stuff in it. Um, now, I would say, like, is Job a real person or is this a metaphor? You could kind of ask the same question about, like, you know, some aspects of, like, you know, first 11 chapters of Genesis. You could kind of ask, like, similar questions. Uh, Ezekiel and James both refer to David, or sorry, Job, in a way that indicates that he was a real person. So, similar to, like, questions about the flood. Like, well, did the flood actually happen? Was it actually global? Like, those are difficult questions to answer. I would say that you know, the general way that I read through the New Testament makes it seem like they thought it was a real thing. Um, you could ask the same thing about, you know, Adam and Eve. Well, Jesus refers to Adam and Eve as if they were real. You read about it in Peter. I mean, I, I, th I think there's the acceptance of these things being real. And so I'll allow for you to wrestle with that later. But uh, Ezekiel and James both mentioned Job. So what happens in Job? Um, I'm going to read again through this. You've got just the little thematic sections. But uh, God tests Job. And so the book of Job questions God's justice. Okay, so if you've not read Job before, basically Job is this like wealthy guy, a good person, and his entire family dies. So this is sort of like wager between Satan and God, and they're going to test Job. And so uh, basically it's like a storm, I think, that comes, and uh, basically everything collapses on his family, um, which is pretty rough. Um, and so the question is, will upright and blameless Job continue to serve God if he loses everything, or will he stay faithful? All right, so then there is this section of Job and then later Job's friends kind of questioning the situation, trying to figure out, basically, this is like the central question, is there is suffering in life that we all deal with, and when that happens, what do we do? Well, we look for someone to blame. And so in this story, they're looking for someone to blame. So the first section is Job accuses God. And so he accuses God of acting unjustly while his friends blame him for wrongdoing. So his friends say, well, it's not God's fault. It's actually your fault, Job. What did you do wrong? Um, and so they all believe that God operates the universe according to rules of justice. Well, then Job questions God. Job reviews his good works and questions why God would allow him to suffer, but he sees his pain through the lens of his limited view. Then God does this like virtual tour, and so this is where you like learn about like, like there's like a Leviathan and all these kind of interesting things. Um, but God responds to Job personally with a virtual tour of the world. He reminds Job that his worldview is infinite while Job's view is limited. And then at the end, Job learns trust. 
God doesn't explain our suffering, but he reminds Job that we live in a complex world and asks us to trust his character and wisdom. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. Um, the one thing I would say about Job is there's like not a definitive like answer to why it happened, and it's not like God feels the need to justify himself, which I think is interesting, because I think there are some times where things happen and we like we want an answer, we want a reason, we want a justification for that, and I don't think that's something that's guaranteed to us. Uh, what, what God kind of does is basically shows Job how small he is and how limited his view is. I feel like with parenting, it's sometimes that case where a kid will ask you, well, why do I have to do this? And it's like, well, because I said so. It's sort of like that kind of an answer. And it, it's a satisfactory answer when you're the parent because like, because I need you to. You know, it's almost like you want them to just kind of like listen and accept it. And it's almost one of those things like, if I had to walk you through every reason why, it would take all day. So it's like kind of one of those sort of answers. I don't know. Um, so this book, uh, it acts uh, as a, on the whole, it illustrates that a full understanding of God's reasons for events is not necessary for faithfulness uh, amid terrible suffering. I think that's tough. As someone, again, who wants to know the answer to every question, I think if I suffer, I'd like to know an answer for that. Um, but we would learn from this that that's not necessary for faithfulness. Um, which may not be a satisfactory answer for you. Um, for Job, though, this is the interesting thing about Job, is that there is a happy ending. His fortune was restored. It was even doubled. This is, for me, like a difficult part of this book. It says that his daughters were the most beautiful in the land, which is almost to say, like, he got new daughters, and they were even more beautiful. <laughs> it's like kind of a weird, what does that say about his old family? You know, um, He lived to be 140. He died an old man full of days. Um, but this is the interesting point. I think this is a misunderstanding that I had. It was almost like, Job, you know, you were so good, you were faithful, and so now I'm going to give you these things. And it was like he earned those by being good, like he won the wager. But that's actually not in the Scripture. Uh, so the Scripture doesn't say that, that he was rewarded for his faithfulness. Um, he wasn't rewarded for his faithfulness any more than he was punished for his unfaithfulness. He was a good guy. This is just the way that it happened. Okay? Um, it is true, though, that Job was faithful and steadfast, but suffering isn't a matter of justice. I think that's an important thing to accept. And that is, we learned that through Ecclesiastes in part two, is, is that the things of this world are the things of this world, and the system that we have is such that good things are going to happen to bad people, bad things are going to happen to good people, and that's the way it's set up. And I think really understanding that requires understanding that our timeline is much more than this 80 years that we have. And if you understand it in that sense, then bad things that happen to you here are only so relevant when you consider it in the grand scope. I always talk about a television series and how there's like six seasons. This portion of our life, think of it as a single season. So the things that happen in this season really are only so relevant to what happens in seasons two through six, okay? And so if we are forever people, if we're created by a God that wants a relationship with us, that has an eternity in store for us, what happens here is in large part meaningless. Okay? The point of this life is to develop a desire to have a relationship with God. So the idea is, is that why is there suffering in this world? Well, in part because we sin, because we create suffering for ourselves, but also because it is the world in which the greatest number of people come to knowledge of God and a relationship with God. And so you either believe that or you don't. Um, but I, I, I can tell you right now that if I had no suffering, I would have no need for God. Okay, I'd have no need to desire God, and I have no need to want to have a relationship with God. Um, and so I think that's why the world is the way it is. 
It's best to understand it. Okay, so in conclusion, I know it's a lot. Apologize. Um, it does seem that suffering is the one human experience that makes us all reflect more deeply on the meaning of life. I think that's true. We talk about this. We've now talked about suffering multiple times. In countries where people are struggling the most, where things are the worst, Christianity spreads the greatest. And people will use that as an argument against it. It's like, well, of course, you know, people in prison are going to become Christian because they need hope. Um, but you could use that argument in reverse. It's you're an atheist because you don't need hope. You think you're comfortable and everything's right in front of you. And you know, so um, the argument work, works both ways. Uh, but the truth is that suffering does breed in us this desire for something more. Okay, and I think we are so distracted and so comfortable that most of us never ask these deep questions of life. Why would we? We have other questions to answer, like. I'm going to get on Fortnite. You know, I'm going to go do that right now. And I'm not going to think about anything. Um, and so from Job, we'll kind of finish with this. There are three things that are important to remember of suffering in life. The first is that we see now in part. So we just see a fragment. So we learned this from Job is that, you know, what Job's understanding of the world was was extremely small compared to what God's understanding of the world was. God is infinite. We are finite. And our view is just what's right in front of us. Uh, the second thing is to trust and obey. And so we, we have to trust God despite sufferings, despite things that we don't understand, and we have to obey Him. So even when life is difficult, uh, we've got to trust that God is sovereign, meaning He's in control, uh, and we must have a healthy fear of the Lord. Um, so if there is a being that is the greatest possible being that created all this, certainly it's appropriate to fear that being. Okay? If it's just us and this all just happened randomly, then we have to fear anything. Okay, we're all going to die. This is all meaningless. This is all going to end. But if there's a God that created all this, put all this into motion, it's the greatest possible being, then it would be natural to fear that person. In the same way that I fear like a seven pound, 300 pound, or seven pound, seven foot, 300 pound person, if I accidentally bump into them, I'm pretty fearful of that person. Much more would I be fearful of an infinite being that is all powerful. Okay. Um, and the last thing is that Jesus' death gives us hope. And so I won't go into all the theology of this, but um, you know, we are separated in many ways from this God that we speak of. And the only thing that can connect us to that is, um, in the Christian sense, is the death of Christ. And it gives us hope for something different. So Job 19.25, um, it says, and I love that this line is in the Old Testament, but I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Um, and so we do have a redeemer. We have someone that makes these things right. We have someone that makes sense of the meaninglessness of life. And I think that's beautiful. And so I think it's super important to be cynical and accept the doubt that we'll all experience uh, as people, as Christians, most of us. Um, but know that there is a firm foundation. There's a, there's a redeemer that has lived and that still lives. Okay. All right. So on this side of all those things, um, it's a lot to think through, and maybe we'll just discuss a little bit.